uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through chapter 2 up to verse 18. And I will be reading from the English Standard Version. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put man from whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the, to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The river named of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Bedellum and onyx stones are there. And the name of the second river is Jehan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden and worked it and kept to keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Thanks, Pastor Joe, and you may be seated if you haven't done so already. We're in the third of our messages on the doctrine of creation, and we started by saying so much can be gathered from these opening pages of the Bible, that it's what properly situates us in this world. We learn about God, and we learn about ourselves in light of him, and I hope in these last couple of weeks you've seen not only what scripture says, but actually this makes more sense of the world in which we live. Say right away, the first five words of the Bible have us making a choice, right? In the beginning, God created. The Bible doesn't hold back at all, right? It's positing a being, a supernatural, majestic being who's outside of time and space, who imposes those things, who speaks matter into existence. Say, really, you only have two choices, that we're only we're all here by chance and that we can't really make much sense of things we just have a lot of questions or we say that there's a good god who brought matter into existence and we're made for him and we occupy his theater of glory and then last week we looked at the days and sadly many christian communities divide over the days the length of the days right and say really that's not what we want to do what we want to do is look at the theological emphasis that is what's it telling us about god that last week we saw God's a good designer, that he's an artist, that he's creative, that he made the natural world in just the right way, fit for living things so that we might reflect his goodness. And this truth isn't lost on modern physicists and mathematicians, some of them anyway, so that's why we can talk about the beauty of mathematics and why physicists say as if it looks like somebody played with the dials, that everything's made just so for human, for human life. And so in those two messages, I hope, again, we've seen, say we're far from being shy about the doctrine of creation, that actually it, uh, it, it forces us to make clear decisions about God and makes more sense of the world in which we live. Now, even a general reading of up till where Pastor Joe read today, you can see that kind of the trajectory of the narrative is preparing everything for human beings that there's a reason homo sapiens have been called the crown of creation. You say there's a great buildup in God's activity, right? That he's separating the waters and the sky and the different lights. And he starts with birds and fish and kind of moves up to living animals. Finally, there are human beings. And who would think, well, I guess like we've been looking at, that there is uh, a much different narrative coming from what we can call secular humanism, those who are naturalists, right? Those who say there is no God, there's a much different view of human life than what scripture is going to present. You see, for a long time now, say many people have tried to get us to see that human beings are really just uh, like no other animal. I think that this is expressed on the popular level with something like John Gray's Straw Dogs, a book that I've referenced before, that Gray's an atheist or an agnostic, but I, I tend to draw on Gray because I think he takes naturalism to its logical conclusion. So when you read something like Straw Dogs, Gray doesn't uh, hold back at all. So he says things like this, humans think they are free conscious beings, but in truth, they're deluded animals. Say, and he says, well, man will long be forgotten before the other species that he's tried to subdue. In other words, that we're just this little blip on the radar. There's nothing special. We're just deluded animals to be forgotten about. In fact, Gray will go so far as to say, 
We can't even talk about human history, that it doesn't even make any sense. You see, Gray takes naturalism. You say, remove God from the picture, and what you have is humanity's nothing more than a different animal, a different kind of animal. Seems to really be, in Lewis's phrase, right, the abolition of man. I like the way that Henry Grunwald, the former chief editor of Time, Inc., he famously said, the greatest heresy of the past was making man the measure of all things, but now we've made him the measure of nothing. Say, isn't that the truth? They say, yes, in our time when the Bible was held up and the Judeo-Christian narrative saturated our culture, you say, of course, human beings were the crown of creation made in God's image, but now not so much. Just another animal to be forgotten just a deluded creature on its way to extinction like all the others. Now, I raise this because I think there's a tremendous tension here among those who would be non-theists, those naturalists. You see, what? on the one hand, I think there are those like Gray who take naturalism to its logical conclusion. That is that there's nothing special about humans, right? If that's, you say, we've all come, right? You kind of look at the messages we've been, or the, the scripture and the messages we've been thinking about. Say, if, if we've just come, uh, as the naturalist says, come from the primordial soup, that we're just here by chance, then of course human beings are nothing special. But you see, that rubs right against the way almost everyone behaves. And I'll give you the test case, right, of how we've responded to this pandemic. You say in all the last seven months or so, and we brought this up before on Sundays, but you say in all the last seven months, I've not heard very many voices argue like this. Well, actually, this pandemic is just running its course through our, our uh, particular species, and it's killing off the weakest species, and we can't say that this is right or wrong. We should really allow it to run its course because maybe it's killing off those who are weakest among us. You say, that would be a very good naturalistic argument. Say, what's all the fuss? If we're just animals on the road to extinction, if there's nothing special about us, then why are we wasting our time and spending so many resources and shutting down the economy at times to preserve human in life. Can you see that tension? You see, at every turn in these messages on the doctrine of creation, you say, I hope to put those who are operating in a naturalistic worldview a bit on, on the defensive. You say, because that makes no sense to me. If we're all animals, let the pandemic run its course. It's just good evolutionary process. And if you say, well, then, well, aren't we coming back closer if we're all frantic about the preservation of human life? You say, isn't that smuggling else something in, something we might say is special about humans? So we'll explore that, that uh, tension a bit more, but here we'll turn again to the climax of God's creation in Genesis, the late half of Genesis 1 and into Genesis 2, that is the making of human beings in God's image. Now, if you've noticed, there's something very interesting God gives us that we actually have two accounts of the making of human beings. Say very quickly in chapter one, right, we're told that man and male and female are made in his image. And then we get to chapter two and forward from verse four, and we have another retelling of the making of humans. Say, how do we reconcile these two? And it, it seems to me that really chapter two is a zoom in of chapter one. All the more reason for us to see that humans are special among God's created order, that we're unique, is that there's kind of the, the general introduction of the topic, that God makes human beings in his image in chapter 1. Then we zoom in in chapter 2, and God gives us a few more details that are important. And so let's unpack this and the wonderful phrase that we all must have on our tongues these days, because I think it is just such a, a richly rewarding term to remind us of human dignity, and that's this, right? Human beings, each and every one of us, 
are made in God's image. You see how clear that is from the opening chapter of the Bible. So God created man, that's humans, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, in just a few eloquent lines, the Bible gives us a great underpinning for a lot of the social ills of our day. Say right away, you say there's no true Christian, anyone who's looking at this saying, I really believe that I'm under God's authority, that I I trust his written word, that I, I see what he's given us. Who am I? Say no true Christian can be a racist, a happy racist. You say, we must be very convicted about that kind of thing. Why? Because every person is made in the image of God. Say, again, I don't think you get there from naturalism, right? Say, it would make all the sense in the world for uh, certain variations to be superior to others and that not being a problem. But in the Bible, we say every person is made in the image of God. There are no exceptions. No room for racism in the heart of the true Christ follower. Say, also, you say also in verse 27, not only is it all people, but goes out of his way to mention both genders. Males and females are made in God's image. See, the Bible has no room for sexism. Say that too, abuse of male physical strength or degrading of women that we hear a lot about. Say no room for that in the heart of the Christian. Why? Because males were both made in the image of God. And again, I think of both of these, be it a race issue or a sexist issue, is very different from the ancient world in which this text emerged, right? So you have people like Aristotle who said things, well, females are just incomplete men. You see how different scripture is, how rewarding. It says, no, men and women are made in God's image to get together their image bearers and they're to represent him. So see how important this phrase is, made in the image of God, boxes out two of our great social ills. And I am somewhat disappointed that Some churches have responded to our current crises in North America on these matters with adopting non-biblical language, you know, or just kind of political jockeying and trying to win legislation. That stuff may be important, but don't you see that this is the rightful ground of us, those who are in Scripture, to say we've got this wonderful teaching at the foundation of our our scriptural, the text that's our authority. That is that every person's made in the image of God, male and female, regardless of their pedigree or their race and so forth, that it's right there. We're all made in the image of God. Now, moreover, we get the wonderful line in two, chapter 2, verse 7. Say, yeah, every uh, animal is told that they have the breath of life in one thirty. but in 2.7, notice what happens, that the Lord God forms the man from the dust, and then what does he do? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Okay, something's going on here. That scripture wants us to see that humans are soulish. That is that we have souls, an immaterial part. See, again, this is a big difference between, I think, the, the faithful Christian and those who, um, you know, are naturalists. You say that, of course, if you're a naturalist, you can't believe in something like the soul. You'd be what's called a, a physicalist or a materialist when it comes to human composition, right? You just say, well, what has always been called the soul is nothing more uh, than, than the brain. Whereas if you're operating within a biblical framework, I think you see there's very good evidence for something called the soul. There's an immaterial part of what it means to be human, an immaterial part that's going to be everlasting. Now, God's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. That's eternality. But humans have something everlasting. They'd say, while our bodies perish, uh, 
they fade and they get old and decay, that the soul goes on. The soul can be renewed. There's an immaterial part that goes on. And I think this goes back to Genesis 2-7. God forms the man from the dust and he breathes the breath of life, right? There's a giving of, of that God image into the human beings, right? And he becomes a living thing, a living creature, that human beings have souls. Now, I don't know. A lot of people ask this question. They say, well, you know, are there going to be animals in heaven? And you say, well, I think God's created order, right? When there's the restoration of all things, it seems to me that there will be animals, but I think we want to draw the line on this matter of the soul. That it's not as if animals, though they're under the curse, which we'll get to in a few weeks, that they're under the curse, they're under uh, the, the groaning of creation. You say it's not as if animals need to be saved in the same way as human beings. That they, they lack this soulish part, the, the part that rebels as openly as humans. And so I think there's a distinction here. Humans are soulish. We have an immaterial part. Now, again, you say, well, I don't know. Is there any proof of the soul? I challenge you to pick up a little book by Thomas Nagel. Now, again, Nagel's not a Christian, I think an agnostic. He's on the faculty at NYU, wrote a little book called What Does This All Mean? And there's a little chapter, I think it's called Mind and Body in there. And I challenge you to read it. Say, Nagel, really, as a philosopher, uh, looking at these themes, thinks there's very good reason to believe that there's an immaterial part of human beings. Say, even though our bodies grow old, we can be discouraged in that sense. Say, our souls can be renewed when they're right with God. You see, we're distinct. So whatever you make of, you know, how humans came to be, say it's very clear, right, that we're unique, that we're distinct, and the way that we have this here is we're both made in God's image and that we have souls. Now, again, I want to bring us to a kind of tension with this matter of human dignity and our current uh, state of affairs. You see, everybody, I think, really, if you ask them on the street, say, do you believe in human dignity and equality? They say, well, yeah, I do do believe in human dignity, and that's why we have it in uh, prominent places. So, for example, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, that this came out of World War II in 1948 after the atrocities, right, when human beings are not treated with dignity. And if you read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you'll be nodding your head. You say, "I, I like that. Every person has dignity and they all have the right to, you know, choose their minds on religion and so forth. You say it's a very good enlightened document. But here's the problem, I think. You say, well, what's the foundation for it? You see, on the one hand, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights looks very biblical. Say it talks about this kind of universal dignity. But the problem is that it's not really attached to anything. That's why it's even called a declaration. It's just a pocket of people declaring that that's the case. You see, again, I think a good comparison, a good illustration is how so much of our culture now is like a chopped off flower. You see, in other words, you have the vestiges, the the footprints of the great Judeo-Christian history, in this case, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that looks very Christian, but it's been chopped off from the God who gave it to us. They say it doesn't do us any good to just declare these things if they're not anchored in reality, in a real truth that is in God himself. You know, the great Russian novelist Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment, you remember this story, and Raskolnikov, right, the man who commits the crime, he makes the argument that some people have the right to commit certain crimes. And you say, look around America today, and you certainly see that kind of mentality. Don't some people have a right to break the law and to, to, to act in a criminal fashion? You see what happens when we just have morality and rights at the level of declaration and at feeling and at sentiment. Say, that doesn't get us far enough. Say, couldn't it just 
be the case that another packet of people gets together and they say, well, we declare this kind of truth to be right. See, it's not anchored in anything. But in Scripture, it's anchored. This idea of human dignity is anchored in God himself, that we're made in his image. There's a real, it's a really concrete thing. So humans being made in the image of God protects us, has us, or gives us a response for a lot of our social ills, like sexism and racism, that it also gives us the underpinning for what a lot of us feel, that is human dignity and equality. And also we can point to this immaterial part in us, which is why we're distinct from the animal kingdom and why we're made to be everlasting, to be in God's presence, because we have a soul that will never die. Say so that's why humans are humans, because we have a soul that will never die. Now, I think we need to hone in a bit more on what this image means. You say, okay, that's a nice phrase. You know, we're made in the image of God, but what does it mean? And in this part, uh, as we talk, I think you'll notice that, again, the naturalist, the person operating without thinking about God, he's going to see these things, he or she is going to see these things as a difference in degree, whereas the Christian will see them as a difference in kind. In other words, when we talk about different faculties and so forth in humans, you say, is this just on an evolutionary process, just a little bit more advanced than other animals? Or do we say that it's altogether different? You see, that's where scripture is that humans are categorically different from anything else in the created order. They're distinct, they're unique. God breathed his life into them, right? That his image is on them, and this is distinct. Now, before I go into this, uh, a number of areas that I think is uh, the Bible communicates about what it means to be in God's image, that the first one I want to bring up loosely, I think, is this. I use three R's, you'll see in the notes, that I call the first reason. I think we could really call it consciousness, uh, the fact that the human mind can do so much more than animal minds. So you want to call that reason or consciousness. But here's a problem that we've often defined man in the image of God uh, this way. And here's the problem. You ask, you say, well, what about all the people that don't have uh, high mental faculties? You say, I think of small children, right? That say the mental ability is not there as an adult. Or you take the very uh, serious... Uh, uh, hardship that many of us face with aging parents, say something like dementia, or those who uh, have cognitive disabilities, right? Or they say, are those, are they any less in the image of God? We say, no, not at all. And we'll get to that in a moment, why they're not. So here's the point I'm trying to make, is that I think that there is, in the image of God, something about the advanced consciousness of human beings, but that doesn't make up all the image of God, because many of us, many humans, uh, lack those faculties that it's not reason in and of itself. But those things being said, think about the fully developed, the appropriately operating, right, in, in normal circumstances, the human brain. The human brain's an amazing thing. Say it only three pounds. You think what it's able to accomplish. So the human brain is not the biggest brain in the world. You say whales have much larger brains if you're just talking about size. And we don't even have the largest brains proportion to uh, body mass. You say something like a mouse, an animal like a mouse would have a very large brain considering its body size. And yet the human brain at only three pounds is such an impressive organ. You say, how did God make us? You say, you just marvel at the human body, don't you? I remember 
being some years ago at an exhibit called Bodies. Maybe you saw it. I can't remember if it was in Cleveland, but it made its way around, you know, and it was using cadavers, but uh, they were preserved in such a way. And I just remember marveling at the human body. The Say, for example, the uh, distance. If you stretched out all the human veins, you just say how long those are. The, the human intestines, the way that God designed us, that the human body is a marvelous thing. The human brain is an amazing thing. I had a friend a few years ago. He was in a bad motorcycle accident and cracked a number of his ribs. And uh, he tells the story. He said, I went into the hospital, and he's talking about how in the world are my cracked ribs ever going to heal, right? Because that's a part of the body, so you have to breathe. And so the ribs are constantly moving. You say, how are broken ribs ever going to heal? And the doctor explained to him, he said, well, actually, uh, what the ribs are able to do is that they begin to grow a, a bit of soft tissue that kind of reaches across. And at the beginning, it's kind of pliable, so you're able to breathe. And they just slowly connect, and there's a little bit of play in there until finally the bones over time uh, get hard again. And, and my friend said, that's a pretty good design. And the doctor said, yes, that's a pretty good design. See, I think, again, just like we have in the natural world, when we really understand the human body, you say, that's a very good design. Who made it that way? Think of the body's ability to heal. Say, either you say, again, that this sophisticated machine just happened by chance for no purpose at all. It's just the evolutionary process. Or you're able to look at the body and say, that's fantastic. Wow, there's a really good artist that we're made in a good image, we're made in God's image, that we're designed, that the body can heal, that the brain is so impressive. Now think further, I'll just isolate, I think, three categories of distinction uh, for humans. So first, think about language. Think linguistically. Say again, you'll talk to someone who doesn't see it from the biblical standpoint, and they'll say, well, you know, dolphins are very smart animals, and they communicate to each other that they can send out signals and so forth. You say, I take the point. Say, I do believe animals have a way of communicating. But again, think about how different from how humans can communicate. See, it's not just a difference in degree. You say, take a dolphin, a very sophisticated, intelligent animal that communicates, and then you think even of my two-year-old who knows so many words already, even at age two, you say that's not a difference in degree, that's a difference in kind. You say, why is that? Remember last week, how does God create? God creates by his word. That he's a speaking God. That he's a communicating God. And God said, and it was so. Today we read about God uh, laying down the parameters and the boundaries of how we can have fellowship with him. That we worship a communicating God. A God who uses his word. So we're made in his image that he's given us words. Ways of communicating that other animals don't have. So many rich ways. You know, I took a couplet from Alexander Pope a famous poet from the 18th century. I just uh, plucked out one couplet in all my poetry anthologies. Listen to this. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance, as the moves his, he moves easiest who's learned to dance. You think in one couplet, a couplet that has to be about writing, you have the author using rhyme, right? Chance and dance. You have him using meter so that there's a bit of a bounce to it. You have him using simile, understanding things like dancing. And of course, he's writing this himself. You say, no animal can do that. One little couplet from one poet could never be accomplished by any animal. You say, sometimes you think of the monkey problem, right? Or the monkey writing problem. 
You say, if you give a bunch of monkeys a typewriter and just uh, allow them to punch away at the keys, will any of them, you say, an infinite number of monkeys, or however many monkeys you want to have, and they're punching away at the keys, will they ever produce Hamlet? You say, no, they can't produce Hamlet. That God has given humans minds and languages to communicate. The way that we do this, again, is not a difference in degree from animals. It's different altogether, which is why Scripture says, look at human beings made in God's image. We take language for granted, but we shouldn't. We can write and we can communicate. God's a speaking God. He speaks through his word. He's given us his written word, and we can speak life into other people. That's distinct. May we always keep in mind that ability to use our tongues to build others up to point to our creator. Now, beyond that, I think we can say I have down intellectually really what I, again, maybe something closer to uh, awareness, but think even the ability to contemplate this topic in a sermon, to think about how we're different, to weigh us against other forms of life. You say that in itself is distinct to humans. Say we possess a kind of attitude to think about emotions differently. Say, think about something like guilt. Say, I know people will tell me, say, well, dogs feel guilt and say, that's not all that clear to me. You say, it's possible that dogs just feel, um, you know, that they've been appropriately disciplined and they they fear uh, further discipline. You say, I definitely believe in things like animal instinct and, and animal behavior, but do they really feel guilt for transgressions? See, animals really feel jealous. I know we apply those kinds of terms, but really think the complex jealousies that we have, again, and we're able to kind of think about what another person's life would, would be like and to imagine being there, or maybe a little bit more positively, to think empathetically, to say, wow, I think about what that person's going through right now. As we prayed some moments ago about those going through a difficult time in the church family, say we're able to empathize and say, well, that is really bad, losing a parent. I, I know what that must feel like. How can I come along and comfort them? See, these are very complex emotions. How about moral obligations or moral obligations to behave altruistically towards those far away. Say, well, I want to do the right thing. I want to be philanthropic, right? I want to love other people. Say, is that natural or instinctive? Say, I think not. Say, this is given to humans alone. That when it comes to human beings, we're able to exercise something beyond animal instinct. Say, yes, sometimes we do, unfortunately, resort to our instincts, which get us in trouble, uh, sometimes get us in trouble. But we have the ability to be self-controlled, to act freely, to take on moral obligations, to feel complex emotions, say, much different than the animal kingdom. Why? Because we're made in God's image, that he's a very smart being, right? An infinitely wise being. And we're made in his image, and we have an element of that by his grace, linguistically, intellectually. How about creatively? So that was really last week's talk. Say God's the maker, the chief maker. He's fashioned the world. Say how much more so? That's why we're able to create. Think of whether it be Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel or one of Bach's cantatas, you say we're able to create art at all levels, to think of, to delight in that art. Say that's because we're made in God's image. You see, friends, humans are distinct that we're special because we're made in God's image. He's a God who speaks. He's infinitely wise. He's creative and beautiful, and we get a little bit of that by his grace, that we never abuse these things, I pray, but use these things to point more people to him. Say again, if you're a naturalist, say all just by chance. All right, let's move forward. So beyond these 
incredible faculties God's given us and the bodies that God's given us say also, I think, that in this idea of image that we must see that we're made for relationship. Say no such thing as a human that's made to be isolated. We have that right away in 126, this very interesting verse, right? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. See, right away you think, well, what about these plural pronouns? Let us and our. Why is that the case? You say, well, of course, we would hold that God's always existed in a trinity. That the Father, Son, and the Spirit, right, they're eternal together. That God in himself is relational. So if we're made in his image, right, and in his likeness, and he's relational, then we're made for relationship too. Not only with him, which is most important, say we're to know God who made us, to be in fellowship with him, to come to him on his terms, say we're made that way, but also for relationship with one another, which we're going to explore more in a couple weeks, right? That there's Adam and Eve, that they're made together, that it's not good, we're told, not good that Adam is alone. We're going to read more about that again in a few weeks. They were made to be with other people, that Adam and Eve, right, are blessed in verse 28. They're blessed and told to multiply. That we say we receive God's pleasure and his mandate, really a mandate to multiply, to, to, to have other human life, to be with other human beings. That's who we're made to be in relationship with God, in relationship with other people under his authority. That's where we flourish. That's what it means to be in God's image. You see, I think this too is a great paradox of our time. Because the way that we sometimes reason, say the last thing I need right now is a relationship with God. Say, really, what I need is just try a bit harder. You know, I've got to get my act together, maybe make a few changes, but I don't think God's my answer. You see, that's the great paradox, isn't it? To say, when we yoke ourselves to God and we put ourselves under his authority and we recognize him as our creator and we're his creatures, that we can have a relationship with him through the means of the Lord Jesus Christ, right, who's our mediator, say, that's when we flourish most. That's when our image, right, is most actualized, right, when we're in Jesus before God. Say, that's when we're most free. Friends, to be in God's image, we're to be in relationship with one another, in relationship with him. Say, isolation is not the way we're supposed to be, but to be with his people and with him. Okay, so we have, yes, why are we in God's image? Because of our reason, our consciousness, the superior abilities that God has given us because of the relationships that we have with one another, that when we live those out, we point to him. And lastly and crucially, that we're put here to rule. Yes, to rule. Humans are put on the earth to rule. Now, here's what's happening. See, in the ancient Near East, again, this is when the text was written, say kings were able to set up images, that the king was a representative of God, right? That the king was the the representative of their God on the earth. And that these kings could then set up statues, which were called images, on their territory. In other words, you saw a king who put up a statue, say, that area belongs to him. You have a quote there from some Assyrian letters, which would have been contemporaneous uh, with uh, some of the Old Testament. And you see exactly this idea playing out, that some uh, ancient Near Eastern kings set up statues in order to tell everybody else that that area belongs to them. And so now you can see what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2. God says, human beings are my images, that I've put them on the earth to represent me. The the earth is mine, God says. It's the theater of my glory. And each one of these human beings represents me. See, that gives us a purpose. 
that we're to represent God. The way we interact with one another, the way that we talk about him and talk about him to others, say that's really connects well with this New Testament idea of being his ambassador. That's what God's images are supposed to do, to reflect their maker. That each of us say this is our very purpose, to reflect our maker. And you know, I raised this last point. You say, do you notice how what something is determines what it's for? This is kind of a basic rule of life. You say we take it for granted, but what something is determines what it's for. You say, think about that with even a basic thing. Say, what if you tried to chop down a tree with some other tool? So you try to chop down a tree with a screwdriver or something. You say, well, that's absurd. You say, you chop down a tree with an axe or a saw that those things are made what a thing is determines what it's for right so here's a saw this is what it was made to do it's going to work best when it cuts down a tree say a screwdriver was made to loosen screws and tighten screws that what it is determines what it's for now you see where I'm going say what's a human a superior reasoning being with a consciousness linguistic abilities emotional abilities creative abilities who's made to be in relationship, to love God and love other people, who's to represent God, that's who we are. So what are we for? We're to reflect that and live it out. You see how very different again. Say, well, I don't want to pay any attention to the Bible. I'm just going to do my own thing. Just, you know, I'm all here by chance. You see how dangerous that is. Because you say, what is a human then? What's a human being then? Say, I'm just here by chance. You say, go back to straw dogs, right? John, Gay, I'm John Gray, I'm just an animal. Say, if that's the case, I'm just an animal. It's very hard to answer the question, what we're, what we're for. Say, no wonder so many now have great anxieties because all this can be lumped together. We're here by chance. We've emerged from the soup. We're nothing more than an animal. We're long going to be forgotten. And if that's the case, I really can't talk about purpose or meaning that any kind of purpose or meeting would also just be a matter of chance. Alternatively, think of what the Bible says. There's a God who's outside of space and time. He's fashioned an order for human flourishing in life to reflect who he is. He's called human beings. He's made us in his image, that he's given us a task. He says, this is who you are, and this is what you're for. You have a purpose. Friends, I hope that this is refreshing to you. Say, But also, I think you also see that we've made a mess of this, haven't we? Not only have we not been good stewards of God's creation, but I can think of many times where I've degraded the image of God in other people. That I've not treated them with this kind of dignity that I talk about and I really long for deep down, say I've not always behaved that way, that I've mistreated people. So not only that, but I've fallen so far short in my own calling to use my reason and my relationships and my rule and representation of him that I've abused those things. Say, well, thank goodness for the Lord Jesus, right, who is the image of God. That when we grow in maturity with Jesus, that our image is slowly remade and conformed to the way that it's supposed to be. Say, thank goodness for the fresh start that we confess, right, those of us who are Christians. Lord, I've not been good with this idea of the image of God, and I need the Lord Jesus to mold me and make me into the image, to help me see, to help me treat others this way. Maybe you're not a Christian, you're watching a sermon, you say, well, I don't know, I've never thought about this world today, but maybe I, I hope something about this idea of the image of God maybe challenges you differently or convicts you differently. 
to say, yeah, you know what, I've just plowed through life. I've not paid any attention to my creator. Well, today's the day to come back to him. Say, the Lord's put forth Jesus. So you can be right with God. To carry out your duty. To carry out the great privilege that we have, right? To represent him. To be his images. So may we now reflect on this this week. As we go forth, we have the underpinning for human dignity. To love other people well. To use our gifts well. And uh, to really... um, again, be, be his good representative. So I'll, I'll pray for us now. Lord, we think about this glorious phrase of being made in your image. And I do, I confess that I have not been obedient to this calling or this been aware of uh, how special you've made humans. The Lord, for the times that I've taken other people down or degraded them or dismissed them, Say, really, I've just uh, walked all over this idea that they're made in your image. Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us. Lord, help us to not abuse the great gifts that you've given us. Say, we're to be in relationship, to love one another, to reflect you, to take advantage of the abilities that you've given us and how many times we've squandered those things. We say, may that not be so. May we see we are your representatives. And Father, again, as we go forth to think about, well, really, the true image is your Son, the Lord Jesus, and that as we surrender to him, we repent and, and die in him and are raised in him. We say that's really what it means to do this bidding of being your image until you come again. So help us to take this charge seriously. And Lord, thank you for making it so clear of who we are so we can know what we're for. And uh, may this message uh, become real to us. May we live it out for Christ's sake. Amen.